This is the Equip Podcast hosted at Rocky Creek in Greenville, South Carolina. This weekly course seeks to equip our church for the work of ministry. Hope it will help you as well. So if you got your hand out, you see that we are actually going through the Sermon on the Mount. You think, wait a minute, I thought that's where we're starting next week. But you guys are actually going to be part of the, let's get our heads around where all this thing is going for the next little bit. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be starting there um, next Sunday. And let me just tell you how this is going to kind of work out for our church. Um, So if you were part of Waypoint last week, one of the things that we talked about was that we're going to have a... um, and hopefully January, February-ish, we're going to have kind of a revamp website. And the plan is this. Um, one of the things that COVID has taught us is that technology is a poor substitute for church, but technology is a good supplement for church, if that makes sense. Okay, So it's a poor substitute because you just miss people. You can watch a service, but it's just not the same as gathering with God's people. Uh, I'm still seeing week to week people that I have not seen since March, but I've been pastoring since March, and it's kind of weird, you know. I'm seeing, I, I, just, I mean, this morning I was like, oh, you're still alive. That's good to know. Like, you know, are you, is this your part of this church? Like, it's good, and you're seeing people come in, and that's going to happen. Um, so I don't think that technology is a good substitute for church. I do think it's a good supplement for the church. And one of the things that this year has taught, um, and we, we talked last week about that the, the nature of how many churches are going to close their doors as a result of 2020. There's, uh, Amanda was telling me that she had heard some kind of study about how many um, more people are having to get on uh, antidepressants this year than ever before, just because of all the stress, all the anxiety, all the different things that are going on that are just struggling with so many things that are happening that it is just this level of like frustration, anxiety, and concern that's like never been there before. And so one of the things is, is that I'm also realizing there are certain issues that I regularly counsel people on, Becky regularly counsels people on, regularly getting questions about, and they're reoccurring issues. And a lot of times people don't want help in those areas until they get almost past the point where they can get help, if that makes sense. Um, a lot of times people are um, not wanting to get marriage counseling until they're almost have already called the lawyers for divorce. And you go, if you just come in a little bit earlier, we might have been able to help some of this stuff. Uh, addictions that have just gotten way beyond the past of things. Anxiety that's gotten out of control. And so you almost, but in all these areas that we talk about, too many times people are too embarrassed to ask for help until it gets really bad. Until they're forced to because they lost a job, they've lost a spouse, they've lost uh, finances. Now it's time to get help. Where what if we could help provide some help along the way? So the whole goal is this, is that on our website, we're going to have a list of resources that if you struggle in those areas that you typically would not want to tell a whole lot of people about, that you could go on and get pastoral help as a start before you get to the place. So give an example. Um, we kind of would like to see a, a page where it says, if you're struggling with anxiety, go here. And there'd be like a simple video message from one of our pastors on staff to say, if you're struggling with anxiety, we get it. You're not alone, but we've got some help for you. Underneath that would be the three best books that we would recommend. Here's a 21-day Bible reading plan. Here's videos and any sermon, course, uh, equip, article, testimony that has to do with that topic would always be populating there. So if somebody said, I've got hours of stuff to interact with, to learn from, then also on that page would say, and when you're ready to get some help, sign up here, and then we can help you in those areas. So the whole goal is to kind of create that, which is a lot of content, a lot of things that we need to do. But what's amazing is this, is that I've been feeling for a while, I wanted to preach the Sermon on the Mount, 
And I wanted to do it after this election because I thought regardless of what happened, we needed to be reminded of what a kingdom citizens live like, okay? And this is the place to go to. And what happened was is that idea and then the other idea is that I see God working through all this is that if you go to Matthew 5 through 7 and look at what Jesus speaks about, all those hot topic issues that are really stressing people out and they need help in are all here, every single one of them. So what we're going to do as we start is that on Sunday morning, we're going to go through all these different topics. On Sunday evening at Equip, we're going to go deeper and practical into some of these topics. So if, I don't know if any of y'all remember the old Sunday night services where the pastor would say, I got some other things I want to say about this morning's sermon. Uh, it's, it's not going to be exactly like that, but like the first Sunday of the year uh, where Jesus talks about, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you have lust in your heart, you've already started to commit adultery, basically. We're going to preach that passage that Sunday morning. When we get to Equip, we're going to have some practical helps of how you combat those types of sins and temptations. That week, we're going to be giving out the list of every resource you can have. We want parents to have the best internet filtering stuff that you can possibly. We want that a church member doesn't have to like Google, I need help in this area. They should be able to go to their church's website and say, here's that issue. But so it's going to be a very concentrated effort. So the staff's already planning out stuff like months ahead of time. So what we'll do at Equip is for all those times that we will be gathering, which will be most weeks, is that we'll speak about this topic that Jesus talks about, and then that evening we'll go a little bit more practical and recording this so that's available on the website and also other stuff going on. So does that make sense, kind of what we're going to be doing? So I'm, I'm super excited about it because I think that Jesus' words are incredible with this. But to do so, I want us to give us a picture of where we're going a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Sermon on the Mount is countercultural living for kingdom citizens. It is a very different way to live for those who truly want to live as kingdom citizens in this life. And so the reason for studying this sermon uh, is this. Matthew 5 through 7 archives the greatest sermon in the history of the world. Okay? Matthew 5 through 7 archives what is the greatest sermon in the history of the world. Um, there is no sermon that has been more quoted, translated more, uh, that has not been used more than anything else in history. And so when Jesus says these words, everything changes for, throughout all history. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, even in that, there's a little bit, um, there's an interesting way about that, because typically, right, even those who just left the 5 o'clock service, you guys sit down, the preacher stands up, right? And this, do you realize what happened? The reverse is taking place. Jesus sits down, everybody crowds around him, stands up. You know, and, and so it's just this unique thing. But what it was is back in those days, the, the, the teacher would sit down, his disciples would come to him. So he sits down on the mountain, his disciples came to him. In verse 2, he, and it, I, lo- I don't know why this sounds dramatic to me, but it says it this way, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, you go, well, of course he had to open his mouth, right? Like he's going to teach them. He's obviously opening his mouth, but it's almost like giving you this sense of anticipation. He sat down on the mountain. They came to him. He opened his mouth. They're sitting on the edge of the seat. And then all of a sudden, he starts saying these words. He starts in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the sermon ends in chapter 7, or the, the response, chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, says this way, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That something happened within those three chapters uh, that, that changed those people around him that sort of said, hey, let me just tell you, this is what the standard's going to be for us going forward, but also changes everyone else from there. And within these three chapters, 
Our messages on being salt and light, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love your enemies, giving to the needy, the Lord's Prayer, uh, fasting, um, uh, giving, uh, anxiety, judgmentalness, uh, prayer, golden rule, treat its fruit, uh, salvation, all these wonderful topics, all contained in the sermon. Now, some people think that this sermon is too, um, you know, jumping from this topic to this topic to this topic, and sometimes you find Jesus saying certain words in a different place that they go, maybe this is a collection of Jesus' sayings that Matthew put together. But Matthew is saying in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, he got up on the mountain, he sat down, he opened his mouth, and he said these things. And so sometimes when you find in Luke in different places, there are certain things that he says, but it doesn't seem like he's on the Sermon on the Mount. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard a preacher say the same thing twice before? Okay. Sometimes there's certain lines that they just kind of get stuck on, right? They get stuck on. Uh, they're going to say it over and over. They're going to say it in different ways, but they keep coming back to these things. I think Jesus probably said, hey, I need to either remind you of this, right? Because repetition helps, right? Or it's a new crowd, and so it's recorded. He wrote certain things down at different times. I think that's easily um, uh, acceptable if we think through it. So it archives what the greatest sermon in the history of the world is. Jesus preached it to a mixed congregation of the disciples and the curious. If we're noticing the group that's been assembled around Jesus, he has called his first disciples before this message takes place. But we know that there are many people around him. So probably uh, when he preaches this sermon, yes, Peter, James, and John are there. There's probably also some Pharisees at the back of the, the room, right? There's probably also some people that are sitting there and, ah, I'm thinking about following him, but I'm not exactly sure. Uh, if those of you who follow the Gospels, you know that Jesus had a group of disciples, the 12 that he called his disciples that he later turned to apostles. But there were hundreds of people that identified themselves as disciples of Jesus. So I think there's probably a couple hundred people here at this sermon and many of them, but there are disciples in there, but there's also people that are curious that are saying, I've heard him about him. I'm hearing what he's doing. I'm still not sure if I'm ready to follow him. And he preaches the sermon. As Jesus gathered his growing followers together, he taught a simple yet thorough overview of how kingdom citizens should live. It is um, simple in the sense of, do you know what Jesus is saying when he says, don't be anxious about tomorrow? Is that complex? No, not in theory. In application, that's a different animal, okay? It's very simple in theory, but it's very thorough what he says to do. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough trouble of its own. You worry about that when you get there. It's simple. It's to the point. You know exactly what he wants you to do. It is not like the book of Daniel, like a time, times, and a half a time, and you're going, I don't know exactly what to do with this. It's very specific. Simple, thorough. He gets to the point. Now, Christianity is more than a mere association of rules. It is a complete dedication to a countercultural lifestyle. So when Jesus gives out this, it's more than just a list of do's and don'ts. It is saying this, this is the way that you ought to live from this point on. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to orient your life. And so it's a dedication to a countercultural lifestyle. Um, I don't know if you've ever been at that place in your life where you feel like I am swimming upstream with the people around me. I'm saying this is what's right and everybody else is thinking something different. You may have had that opportunity when you gather with your family for Thanksgiving, right? Some people think a little bit differently and, and believe different things. But what does it live like? Well, right now, in Jesus' days, what he gave this message, it was countercultural. And I'm saying this, in the United States of America in 2020, this is about as countercultural as you can get, Okay. It is completely foreign to what most people would say that we need to live our lives. It serves as the bridge between the Old Testament law and the New Testament standard. So what Jesus masterfully does in these verses 
is he doesn't say he starts something new. Uh, he says, all right, guys, you've heard of the law and the prophets. I'm going to I'm not going to do away with them. In fact, he says in chapter uh, 5, verse 17, don't think I came to abolish them. I actually came to fulfill them. And then what he does next is, he says, so you've heard that it says don't commit murder. And most everybody in that room felt really good about that one, right? I mean, I've typically, I've been in certain times where I've preached and I've gone through the Ten Commandments. I'm like, I know no one's ever here struggled with that. And someone came up to me after the sermon and said, don't assume things, Pastor. And I went, okay, okay. And so it just reminds you, right? Well, Jesus says, don't, you've heard it said don't commit murder. And everybody most likely around there felt really good about themselves. And what does he do? He ruins everybody's day. He says, I say to you, murder starts in the heart when you allow hatred to fester. That's where it starts. And how many of you are guilty of that? Well, everybody goes, well, all of us are. Hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And a lot of people thought, ha, never done that. And if you have ever had lust after anybody, you've been there already. And all of a sudden, what does he do? He, now, he's not changing the rules. He's actually up in the ante, right? He's just raising the bar, if anything, and saying it's more than just the action. It is the attitude behind the action that he's after to get through. So he's going to serve. This sermon serves as the bridge between the Old Testament law and the New Testament standard. Jesus confronted the external trappings of legalism and prioritized the internal workings of devotion. He says repeatedly throughout this sermon, he is not really necessarily in this passage calling out the Pharisees like he would do later. Okay, He does a little bit at certain points, calls them out directly, but he basically says this, hey, you can do all the external things and that's fine, but your heart can still be removed from God. Have you ever known anybody who was very faithful in church attendance and yet was not very godly? Yeah, you know the external stuff there, but what about the internal thing? Well, the internal workings of a true devotion, what it's supposed to look like. Now, uh, I believe that Sermon on the Mount is the first of five discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. These are kind of sermon topics that really go down. And if you look at the way that this breaks down, there are really five main kind of sermons or longer teaching passages that are contained in the book of Matthew. Uh, really, chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, really is discipleship. This is what the disciples of Jesus looks like. And chapter 10, it's apostleship. What happens when you are sent out to go and do things? You're an apostle now. You're sent out on mission. Revelation chapter 13, about when God's Word comes to us, He reveals the Word, what happens. Jesus taught extensively on that. And chapter 18, He taught extensively about the church, what the gathering of God's people should look like. Uh, how they should forgive, how they should operate, how they should do church discipline. And then chapters 23 through 25, he talks about the final coming judgment. And these are really the five main teaching passages in the book of Matthew. Now, I'm also, I don't have this in the notes, but I think it's important to mention. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, right? So it means that it follows the Old Testament, follows Malachi, right? So here's the thing. Why is Matthew? Because I believe that Mark was actually written first. That's just my opinion based on a few different things. So why is Matthew first? I think Matthew is first because if you look through Matthew, what you notice is, um, in fact, just look over to the left, chapter 4. Um, do you notice um, how your Bible has formatted chapter 4, verse 4? Do you notice that it looks different? Probably indented or all caps or it's centered up on the page. Do you notice that? Chapter 4, uh, verse 6. You notice the same kind of formatting? Uh, go down to verse number 10. 
Go down to 15 and 16. You see how it's all formatted differently? Centered up, justified, something or whatever, all caps. Because those are all quotations from the Old Testament. If you turn back, you will notice that same format in chapter 3. You will notice that same format in chapter 2. You will notice that same format in chapter 1. What's happening? Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than anybody. So I believe Matthew was put there first in order to say, I'm bridging the gap here, folks. <laughs> For those of you who've been following the Old Testament and now we're in the New Testament, I want you to see this isn't a new movement. This is continuing what God did to the Old Testament. So, which makes sense that this first sermon, Jesus is saying, you remember the Old Testament law? Of course we've, mem we've memorized the law. We've kept the law. Really? Let's get down to the heart level. Have you really kept the law? Have you really followed this all the way to the extent? And he goes to the heart level. So this is the first five discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, uh, I'm going to give you conflicting views on the sermon, because if you're not aware, sometimes religious people disagree about stuff. Were you aware of that? I don't know. Okay. This happens from time to time, and people have very different opinions on what this sermon is supposed to be about. Let me give you the examples. The first one is what's called the interim ethic view. Sounds really boring. Um, but some believe that this radical standard was used waiting for the consummate kingdom, but can be dismissed since it did not arrive immediately. Now, you can write those down, but let me explain what that means. It means that some people see that the way of God was contained within the Old Testament was this. Keep the law in the Old Testament. And after the cross of Jesus, you are now under grace. But the time between the Old Testament and the cross is this interim time where Jesus was calling the Jewish people to be a part of this kingdom of God, and they rejected him. And the Sermon on the Mount is, here's how kingdom citizens should live. The Jewish people did not obey it, and so therefore, now that sermon is kind of null and void, and it was great for a few years, but that's all. That's the interim ethic view. I, do, I think that's a pretty weak uh, understanding of what this sermon is all about. That basically, it was only there for about three years and we can move on from it. I don't think that's what this is about at all. The second view is called classic liberalism. This view rejected the need for redemption and highlighted the sermon as the code for a progressive society. That sound accurate? Okay. So classic liberalism says, this really isn't about spiritual matters. This is teaching us how we need to have a better society. Now, if, let me ask you a question. If everybody in the United States of America applied the Sermon on the Mount, would we have a better society? Yes, of course. Was Jesus doing this to transform a society? Yes and no. He's really after the hearts of individuals that would there go and forward change society. But so some people would say this as, okay, look, all this is about is about what we need to do. So give you an example. They would take Jesus' words on do not murder and anger, and instead of that applying to what you need to do, they would say, it says, no capital punishment. That's what it's talking about. That, that's how they would change that versus don't have hatred in your heart. It's saying we shouldn't murder anybody in the first place anyway. Let that be the code for society, and they kind of use a liberal agenda. Uh, they would talk about not laying up for treasures in heaven uh, and basically giving stuff away. Can you see how maybe some people might take that to a communist or socialistic agenda, that's how they would see this. This is a code of ethic. This is the way that we should live and it should change our society. I don't think, I think Jesus wants it to affect our society, but that's not exactly what he's after. The third one is Lutheran orthodoxy. This view sees the standard as unattainable and points to the need for redemption. So the Lutheran orthodoxy view of the Sermon on the Mount is this. Ain't nobody able to keep this thing. And that's the point. They think it's too high, too strong, too difficult, and that's the point of it. 
It shows our need for grace, and nobody can keep it. Now, um, I think that at some level, that's what the Ten Commandments were supposed to do. The Ten Commandments were supposed to show nobody can keep them perfectly. But does that mean that you throw it out? Well, nobody can keep them perfectly, so I just forget about it. No, it means you should at least strive for it, even if you can't keep it perfectly. I think the Sermon on the Mount is that. I know you can't keep it perfectly. Nobody can. But if Jesus doesn't set the bar, guess what we're going to happen? We're going to just settle for mediocre following him. So the bar is set, but there are some people who believe it just sets up to say it's unattainable, and we basically, all it was to show us is nobody can do this, and you need to be saved. I do think it helps point to that, but I think it's more than that. Number four, existential approach, right? The experiential kind of side of things. This view highlights the resolve to operate from a heavenly perspective of openness to making the future better. It's kind of like, hey, just make sure you have an open mind about things and your experience and just make sure it's kind of all in your frame of your worldview. And it really, if it influences the way you live, that's great, but really you need to have an openness to what God is doing in your own life and in the kingdom kind of around you. And it kind of stops, I think, the level of what Jesus is also looking for. That while this does point to our need for redemption, he's also calling for our obedience, right? He's calling it for us to change some things. Um, number five, the dispensational approach. Uh, this sermon offered a millennial kingdom to the Jews, but when they rescinded, he took the call away and ushered in the present age for grace. This is kind of similar to the first one, but some people believe that this was, this was the code for a millennial kingdom, uh, that the people should be living on earth to usher in God's kingdom upon earth. But since they can't do it, uh, he's ushered in the present age of grace, and we need to move on from that. So once again, very close to the first view, uh, but thinking that the Jews rescinded from it, and now he's moved on. Uh, the sixth one is the straightforward approach, which obviously is the last one, so you know this is where I'm going to land more likely, okay? Um, this way acknowledges the impossible nature while emphasizing the necessary standard. So is the Sermon on the Mount um, somewhat impossible to keep perfectly? If you're not in Jesus, yes, it's impossible. But is it also the necessary standard for our lives? Absolutely. I'll give you, um, I'll give you the verse that throws everybody for a loop that causes people to think that this, this whole sermon was not meant for us to be applied. Look at chapter 5, verse 48. If you ever want to know where Jesus expects of you, and you've ever told people, well, he doesn't want you to be perfect. Look what it says. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that'll ruin your life, okay, right? What does God want? Jesus just said you need to be perfect. Now, does that challenge anybody? Because how many times have we told people, he's not wanting you to be perfect, right? He knows that you can't be perfect. And Jesus just said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, why would Jesus say that? Some people would say, he's saying, he's showing you you can't be it. There's no way you can do it. Or is that word perfect really going to but this idea of maturity and completeness and not giving up and saying, all right, God, show the weak areas of my life and keep working on me. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to continue to work out. I'm going to continue to flesh these things out. So I think that the, it does acknowledge the impossible nature, but it also emphasizes that the Sermon on the Mount is a necessary standard for us. Now, the emphases that are contained in the sermon, because um, really while they, they do kind of jump from topic to topic, uh, kind of, it almost seems like Jesus just gets on a soapbox and saying, and another thing, and another thing. Let me tell you about this. But there really is a progression if you think through it. 
Uh, the content of this sermon is to be the kingdom standard in a confused culture. So it, it, it does come alongside and it's giving a standard in a confused culture. It's teaching us how we should live with our emotions, with temptations, uh, with being salt and light in this world, what spiritual disciplines should look like. It is teaching us all these wonderful things as a kingdom standard in a confused culture. So we say that our ultimate citizenship, our ultimate kingdom is uh, above. It's the heavenly kingdom. And so therefore we want to live on earth as it is what? In heaven. We want to live that way. Now Jesus' words are the standard to which the disciples should ultimately strive. That's, that's the word I want you to really lock in on to. It's a, it's a uh, standard to which you should strive. Doesn't mean that you can do it perfectly, but goodness gracious, don't you want to give it the best shot that God gives you the power to do? Um, so um, in this, where it says uh, chapter 6, um, chapter 6, verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? That's one of the most convicting verses I've ever heard, you know? Hey, so you just you got anxious for an hour. Did that add an hour to your life? No. It actually took one away. And what better are you for it? Nothing. You're in worse than you started. You've lost an hour. Now you're more anxious than ever. Now, what is this saying? Throughout this whole passage, he's saying, don't be anxious about your life. Birds, they're not worried about where they're going at night. Don't you think your father cares about you more than he cares about the birds? He cares about the sparrows? Don't you think he's got you? And, and so this... so. All right, therefore, I'm going to live free of anxiety all of my life. Is that going to happen completely and perfectly? No. But should we strive for it? Yes. So every time you see a bird that doesn't look stressed out, you should go, all right, if that bird's not stressed out, maybe I shouldn't be stressed out either. Why? Because my father cares for me. Uh, if the grass doesn't seem to be stressed out right now, I'm stressed out about the grass. The grass isn't stressed out by himself. Like, why? Okay, if that's the case, Jesus is saying, so trust me, strive for that. Strive to be free of anxiety. Since we belong to Jesus, we should strive to live like him. This is the code that Jesus would say. If you're going to follow me, this is what it looks like. Um, chapter 6, verse 9. Pray like this. Jesus is just saying, you confused about prayer? I got it. I'll tell you how to do it. I'll tell you how to pray. This is what you need to do. Um, the companion piece in Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 11, where it says they came up to Jesus and, and they said, hey, John's disciples teach them, uh, taught them how to pray. Why don't you teach us how to pray? And he goes, all right, this is the way to do it. Our Father who art in heaven. And he, he teaches them, right? So this is a way that Jesus is teaching them how. And so if we belong to him, shouldn't we strive to live like him, pray like him, give like him, serve like him? This is the approach we have. And even if we can't keep the standard perfectly, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't live trying, Okay. I know typically you hear we should die trying, but I'm saying, shouldn't we live trying to live out that standard, <laughs> to live out what God's calling us to do? Wouldn't we say that Jesus' ways are far better than our ways? And even if we strike out from time to time, even if we hit some foul balls, at least we're giving it the best shot and saying we want to do things his way. So when he comes along and says some very difficult things, uh, it causes us to be able to understand better, I think, what he is calling us to do with our lives. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't live trying to try to keep it to as well as the power that he gives us. Now, the outline of the sermon, you can see here, uh, once again, saying that there isn't a, um, it does move topic from topic, but in the first few verses, it's called the Beatitudes, right? Uh, these are 
these positions of what the happy life looks like uh, in Christ. Uh, if you're going to do this, the word blessed there, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, that word literally means happy. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are meek. Happy are those who are hungry and thirst. These are the kind of things. They're the Beatitudes. Uh, verses 13 through 16 is the witness of the disciples. This is the salt and the light passage. Um, uh, 17 through 48, the law and the disciples. So what do we do with the Old Testament law? How does it interact with our lives now that we're walking into this? So this is all the places where you've heard it said, don't do this. You've heard it said, don't do this. You've heard it said, don't do this. But I say to you, but I say to you, but I say to you, he raises the bar of what the law should be. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, talks about the disciplines of the disciples. I love chapter 6 because of what he does. Um, uh, if you notice, in, in fact, turn, turn over to chapter 6 because in these first 18 verses, he talks about three spiritual disciplines that are important. Giving, praying, and fasting. Okay? Now, if I were to ask you, which one do you like the most? Giving praying or fasting, right? Um, I probably know it would probably be the third on most of our list, okay? But look how he says this. Verse 2, when you give to the needy, what he does not say is if you give to the needy, he has when you do. Verse 5, and when you pray. Verse 7, and when you pray. And verse 16, and when you fast, he's going, I know you're going to do these things. So let me just tell you how to do them, okay? I know that you're going to give. I know that you're going to pray. I know that you're going to fast. And so when you do these things, let me coach you how to do them and do, the, do them well. So these disciplines that are there, um, chapter 6, verse 19, all the way to seven twelve, the priorities of the disciples about how they should live in their life and where their heart, their demeanor, their position before the Lord should be. Um, one of the most misinterpreted passages of Scripture are the opening verses in chapter 7. Because this is uh, Americans' favorite Bible verse, judge not so that you may not be judged. And they don't read the rest of the paragraph. The rest of the paragraph says, so if, you have a, if you see a speck in your brother's eye, what are you supposed to do? Look around and see if you got something what? A log in your own. And so what does it say? So just leave both of them in there? No, it says, take out the log so that you can do what? Help remove the speck. He doesn't say, don't be concerned about the speck. He just said, don't bump into them with your log sticking out of your eye while you're criticizing them. He says, get the log out of your own eye so that you know how to get the speck out of your brother's eye. It is important that we need accountability. And so these are kind of the priorities of the disciples of how they should live. And then verse 13 through 27 really have to do with the path of disciples. Enter in by the narrow gate. Tree is known by its fruit. Um, and then even through uh, on about uh, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so all these different places, and the last bit where I think this is, this gives us the indication of that Jesus does expect us to apply these words, is that the last paragraph that's in this whole uh, sermon, what does he say starting in verse 24? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, two people, two storms. Two very different situations. And did you catch the difference? Why did one house stand 
And why did one house fall? Look at verse 24. What's the one difference? Because did both of them hear the word? Yes. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine, there's one thing that, that uh, makes those two different. Did you catch it? One applied them. One did them. One didn't do them. So do you think Jesus gave this whole sermon and said, everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them, oh, by the way, don't worry about it. <laughs> the last paragraph of the sermon is, you can hear this, and if you don't apply it, you are wasting this, and the storm's going to hit your house, and you're going to collapse. And so I'm telling you, it's more than just, oh, I've heard this. I've known people who've memorized this sermon more than they have applied it. It's more important to apply the sermon. That's the whole point of what Jesus is saying here. So the way that I love doing this, um, and... and I won't bore you all the details. When I'm praying and seeking the Lord and trying to say, okay, Lord, where do you want us to go for the year? Um, I just pray through, like, what are the biggest issues going on in our church or in society that we need to address as the church? And so I really felt like, and then I go, where's the best place in the Bible to go to it? That's why we went landed at Daniel at this time. So I want us to go on the Sermon on the Mount at that time. Then what I do is I kind of like just say, all right, how long will it take to, to preach this? Now, you, I've known people who have spent one week on each beatitude, like verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot I got to milk out of that thing to spend a whole sermon on, right? And, you, and people can do it, and that, that's fine. But I'm going, okay, how long will it take? And so I, I do a rough draft and go, okay, it's probably going to take 20 sermons or 23, or it could go down to 19 or something, and I play around. If I start on this date, where will it fall? This is what I love where I feel like God, how he lines certain things up. Um, because I'm also always worried about the calendar, you know? People are going to want a Christmas sermon. What about Easter? <laughs> going to get a Mother's Day. What are you going to do there? But I love, I love when God's Word takes care of it. Let me, let me read to you the verses that will be the Sunday before Christmas. Okay, Chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The day that we celebrate Jesus coming to earth, he's saying... All that stuff in the Old Testament that you think about, I didn't come to get rid of it. I'm actually came to fulfill it. Um, uh, what happens on Easter Sunday if we continue to follow this logical conclusion? Because this actually, if, if we go down it the way that I, I felt like it needed to be preached, the, the, the kind of pace that it needed to be set, it's going to go all the way to like the third, second or third Sunday in April, which brings us to um, Easter, is chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, I know that's not the most typical Easter sermon that you hear, but have y'all ever heard about the CEOs, the Christmas and Easter only Christians? Y'all ever, okay, you ever heard about that? Okay, people who just show up on Christmas, just show up on Easter, and why is Easter a high attended Sunday? At least it was before COVID. Um, you know, because last Easter I was in there by myself, but uh, well, typically everybody shows up on Easter, right? Everybody does. And somebody like, oh, yeah, I've been a member here all my life. Only come twice a year. But I'm here today because it's Easter, right? And could there be people on Easter Sunday who says that Jesus could one day look at them and say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you know my name and you think, even this, they, they say some things about what Jesus has done. I mean, what, what some people have done in the name of Jesus and going, that doesn't guarantee you a spot in heaven. And so, like, just the way that all of this kind of lines up, I just thought, Lord, this is such a helpful kind of word for us. And so with all that in play, right, all those different elements that we think through, 
what I believe Jesus is going to say to us through his word for the next like four months or so. Um, what I want to do is I want to read this sermon and then we're going to just pray and be done because sometimes it's just good to just kind of just let it just kind of hear it. And, um, and I'll read it at a good pace and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of be there. But I want you to think about all these topics and I want you to think about does this intersect our lives right now in such a needed way? Maybe yours specifically, but ours is society. And as you're reading, you're going to be thinking through ways that as a church we can help people out and be praying through the resources that will be given. But we have a lot of work ahead of us. But so he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, we call least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does uh, them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Let your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better than you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. 
Now you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Go to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. But you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, go. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not, that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if the son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and the great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And Jesus, we thank you for these words, and we pray that they would transform us in the coming months and transform this uh, community around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.